0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly, easier said, done.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money. At QuickBooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang.
3: in san francisco and this is bloomberg technology coming up in the next hour broadcom and talks to buy vmware setting up a blockbuster tech deal that would vault the chip maker into a highly specialized area of software we'll tell you everything we know so far about this bloomberg scoop Plus, I'm joined exclusively by Shantanu Narayan, CEO and chair of Adobe. We've got a lot to talk about, including how Adobe is handling this market sell-off, plus his outlook for the company's future and plans for the metaverse. And Coinbase's fall from grace. How a bear market, regulatory pressure, and falling crypto prices are piling up on the largest U.S. crypto exchange. Coinbase has now lost $51 billion in market value since its IPO. More in our crypto report later this hour. Let's talk a whole lot more about that Broadcom deal for VMware. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Liana Baker, who covers M&A for us. And I'm also joined by James Fish, an analyst at Piper Sandler who focuses specifically on infrastructure and communication software liana first of all uh, tell us what we know what we don't know at this point sure so
4: we know that broadcom is in talks to buy vmware it's a blockbuster deal we don't know the exact price but before our story you know shares are already trading valuing vmware at over 40 billion so this is really going to be a large one and the deal is probably imminent we reported it's coming later this week and it's going to be uh, one of the biggest tech
3: deals in years so, James, if we're looking at a potential $60 billion valuation for VMware as part of this deal, who do you think wins, who loses in this tie-up?
5: Um, look,
6: it's a story for Broadcom and talking with my colleague Harsh Kumar, where you know they've done a tremendous job on, on rolling up some of these software assets, whether it's CA and Symantec together, actually, in app AppMeta was a small one that they did last year. Um, but at the end of the day, you know the playbook that. Uh, the CEO of Broadcom runs you know fits well with uh, VMware uh, for the most part we see VMware as fairly complementary uh, to the existing software uh, segments that they have. Uh, there is some overlap especially as you start to think about the carbon black deal that VMware did with for example the semantic endpoint protection business um, but overall you know VMware has been a drag versus uh, some of the others in infrastructure. Uh, because of the delta vestiture overhang, because of the move towards public cloud, and because of its ongoing transition. So, you know, it can be a win-win for both sides in this case.
3: Hmm. Liana, how close is this to being a done deal? I know we're reporting it could potentially happen this week. It's funny. With
4: Broadcom, you never know. Last summer, they were close to a deal with something called SAS Institute, a deal uh, valued close to $20 billion, and it fell apart. Uh, and then three years ago, Broadcom was close to buying all of Symantec, and that also fell apart. So you never know with Broadcom CEO, Hawk Tan. But this one, from what we know, it's still in talks, uh, not in danger right now of, of falling apart. But a deal isn't done until it gets to the finish line. And as you know, with Elon Musk and Twitter, even if you do get to the finish line, it may not be a done deal.
3: Exactly. Um, Qualcomm, Broadcom did try to buy Qualcomm back in 2018, which also would have been a massive deal. That didn't happen because of Trump administration concerns about Broadcom's headquarters in Singapore. But we did catch up with Qualcomm CEO Cristiano Amon in Davos earlier asked his thoughts on this potential tie up between Broadcom and VMware. Take a listen to what he had to say.
7: It's really for Broadcom to comment, but the way I look, Broadcom's becoming more of a software company, and uh, you know with some of the acquisitions they made in the past, and I think VMware is a software company uh, we're going to the different direction. I think we will continue to be a semiconductor f- company focused in the growth that we have in this industry, especially at the edge, and uh, we continue to see not consolidation, but conversions of all those opportunities.
3: James Broadcom CEO Tan, as ambitious and seemingly acquisitive as ever, is Broadcom even a chip company anymore, or is it more of a software company?
6: Well, to be fair, I don't I don't cover Broadcom, but you know the the chip part does still uh, overwhelm the software piece. But when you think about it, you have a roughly seven eight billion dollars run rate on the software side and when you look at what vmware could do that could essentially triple the size of the software business and and kind of start to bring it more in line with the uh, semiconductor side of the business,
3: James. What do you make of the fact that this is happening when we are in the midst of a tech sell-off, and and do you expect more big deals of this nature? Well,
6: it, it's a good question. I actually just wanted to comment on, on uh, Liana's point there. It, it probably does uh, trigger the Chinese uh, regulatories just because VMware does have a decently sized business there um, that would kind of be over that threshold rate that that's typically assigned there. So, we would expect China to be somewhat involved here on the approval process needing to get done. And, you know, it's very few companies that could actually, you know, swallow something the size of uh, VMware in this case. Um, And let's face it, some of the hyperscalers would have some challenge in getting this kind of deal done. So it kind of removes them to a degree from the equation. I I wouldn't say it's impossible, but uh, it does present some problems on on that end. Um, But it is the case where um, you know, at the end of the day, Broadcom makes makes a lot of sense. And, you know, for um, uh, for really what needs to get done here, um, we, we see a pretty smooth uh, process. It just might take some time. And um, yeah. All right.
3: James Fish, Piper Sandler. Thanks for your perspective. Liana, we're going to continue to watch your team's reporting on this deal. Thank you both. Airbnb is closing its business in China, according to Bloomberg sources. Chinese tourists traveling abroad have been a bigger opportunity for Airbnb with its domestic business inside China, accounting for just a percent of Airbnb's revenue. Uh, Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky addressed all of this in my last interview with him on Bloomberg Television. Take a listen.
0: You know, our China business has primarily been people in China leaving China obviously crossing a border, so it's cross-border travel, going to other countries. Japan was a really popular corridor. South Korea, they're going to, like, Europe. They're going to other places. Because of the situation in China in COVID, there's not a huge amount of outbound business right now. And so our business in China is not super robust, and it's going to be probably a while. It's really going to track with the health crisis.
3: All mainland Chinese listings will be taken down by this summer, according to sources. All right. Speaking of Airbnb, CEO Brian Chesky also tweeting a number of times about the difficulties facing tech and startups in particular, given the volatility we are seeing in the markets for more on all this and just how low things could go. I'm joined by Dan Suzuki. He's the chief investment officer at Richard Bernstein Advisory, which has about $15 billion in assets under management. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. So, look, did we just hit the bottom and are we on our way back up or is there a lot lower we could go?
8: (laughs) Well, Emily, I think the reality is that that nobody really knows for sure. Um, but I would say that the you, you don't want to sort of jump in here simply because you know, regardless, you're going to get these big moves in markets on both sides. But you know, it all comes back to us. You know, why do you, why would you buy? And I think it's when the data tells you you should buy. And right, now, the issue that the markets content have is despite the fact that you have this, you've had this sell off, profits are still slowing, liquidity is still tightening, and you know, valuations while have come down a little bit, they're still quite elevated in certain parts of the market. So. That's not a combination of factors that tells you you want to jump in feet first to markets, even if you think that they've gotten a little bit cheaper.
3: So let's talk about tech in particular. Just what kind of a roller coaster are you expecting tech itself to be on over the next weeks and months?
8: Yeah. You know, to be honest, I think that we are at, you know, we are in the early stages of a new paradigm and a new secular leadership in stocks. And that secular leadership is not going to be the same as the leadership over the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, investors always invest in the rearview mirror, you know, but. This is probably a time, given the huge shifts, you know, the the tectonic shifts we're seeing in the macro backdrop, that are screaming that you know the backdrop is changing. So it's it should be no, it should be obvious that the probably the leadership of markets is going to change with all this happening. Um, I, I, I think this is not going to be a short-term thing, and this is something we've been saying that you know tech and innovation and disruption. While we believe in the story. You know, people have got ahead of themselves in terms of their the valuations, in terms of the expectations, and it's created a bubble, uh, and, and that bubble is in the process of deflating. And if you look at the history of bubbles, they don't softly and quickly correct over a six-month period. It typically takes longer, and they usually go down more than what we've seen so far, despite the fact that you have sometimes monster rallies on the way down. Um, so there's nothing to say you can't get that, but I would not be jumping in, in here like some others are saying. This is a buying opportunity of a lifetime. I just don't think so.
3: Now, we're just getting some headlines from a new filing that just came out from Snap. Snap saying that they are expecting their EBITDA and revenue in the second quarter to come in at the low end of their guidance, saying that the macroeconomic environment has deteriorated much more quickly than they thought. What do you make of this?
8: Well, I think you know there, there there's two important takeaways here. You know, one, this is just another example of you know companies' results over the last earnings season or two that have had to sort of bring down these unexp- uh, unattainable, uh, unrealistic investor expectations down to earth. I think the two unrealistic expectations have been that you're going to continue to see growth at the same trajectory you have over the last few years, and all secondarily that you're going to see all these companies be winners. I think you're seeing company after company tell you that that's not going to be the case underlying growth is slowing as these companies mature and it gets more com- competitive. And that's one thing. The second thing that I think is critical is that the market continues to underestimate the economic sensitivity of, of these tech stocks. I think that when you when you think about it, you know, if the economy starts to slow, you're going to cut the number of streaming services you're going to use. Companies are going to cut their advertising spending. They're going to have less software investments. You're going to buy less discretion you know, high expensive technology goods. And so technology is very cyclical. It just wasn't during the pandemic. And so as growth continues to slow, that's going to be a headwind. And the big issue is not just that things are going to slow, but expectations just aren't there yet. and So I think that's why you get these big ratings as you re-rate those expectations.
3: So SnapShare now down 22-some uh, percent after hours. We're going to continue to follow that. Dan, I'd love to get your thoughts on this p- pending, potentially pending deal between Broadcom and VMware. It would be a massive consolidation in the tech space. Do you think we're going to see more M&A like this given the environment or, or not, given that what we're seeing is actually a huge premium on where VMware is trading today?
8: Yeah, I think, you know, if you if you think about just the overall trends it's not it's it it's not you know, out of the norm to see this type of action. I mean, it, it, you know, very much typically what you see with company, the way companies act is very similar to the way investors act. And so that's why you see share buybacks tend to peak at market highs, M&A activity tends to peak, you know, at peaks of markets. And then even after things start to roll over, you tend to see a lot of momentum uh, with investor activity as well as company activity because they think, you know, they're getting big sale price on the, on the these assets, uh, and I think that that's kind of what you're seeing today. That'll probably dry up, and that'll be the sign that you know you're really starting to see things roll over, and that you're reaching okay. that bottom.
3: All right, we're going to continue to watch all of this. Dan Suzuki, Richard Bernstein, advisors, thank you for sharing your perspective with us. And coming up, we're going to hear from Intel's CEO in Davos on all things chip and a progress update on supply chain pain, plus his thoughts on that VMware deal, given that he was, of course, previously CEO of VMware. This is Bloomberg.
9: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator?
10: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
3: Continuing our coverage of a potential acquisition of VMware by Broadcom, we spoke with Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger from Davos. He was, of course, the former CEO of VMware. Here he is with my colleague Haslinda Amin talking about all things also chip supply.
10: Yeah, no, we we definitely think that the supply-demand balance is 2024. And, uh, you know, a year ago, I said 2023. Since then, we've seen a number of equipment supply chains move out. So our equipment coming into the fabs that we're building, that has moved out. So overall, 2024 until we start to see a reasonable balancing of semiconductor supply chain.
11: So will it get worse from here before it gets better? Because when you take a look at the ports in China, for instance, we're talking about Mm. 50, 60 ships just waiting to unload and of course uh, that's causing a lot of headaches
10: oh yeah the supply chain issues that we've seen in uh, China but it comes on the back of many other supply chain issues so we're already sort of beaten down and so we have to work through it and maybe the you know softening of the economy a little bit of consumer softness gives us just a little bit of breath but you know we're still out till 2024 and obviously the uh, Shanghai ports have you know created a bit more turbulence that we're managing through near term
11: we talk about a slowdown in fact uh, a global slowdown Although we've seen a pushback from Kristalina Georgieva, saying we're not looking at a, a global recession, but definitely a slowdown. Would that mean demand destruction? What assumptions are you making?
10: Well, we definitely see a bit of softening on the consumer side. Right? How much well,
11: softening? I mean, can, can you give a number to that?
10: Um, you know, as you saw in our earnings, you know, we saw you know there was a meaningful, you know, several, you know, a number of percentage points softer there. We originally were expecting the PC industry to be up a couple of points this year. Now it's sort of flattish, maybe down one point. So, you know, a meaningful swing, but on the business side, the enterprise and commercial side, no change right continuing to have real strength in those uh, uh, areas of the market you know i think with you know inflation concerns tightening a monetary policy these continuing supply chain challenges yeah things are probably going to be a little bit choppy for a couple of quarters you're
11: also re-looking reviewing where you produce your chips in fact you're making europe as well as the u.s a priority and perhaps that message is resonating even more given what we're seeing in china um, yeah that coming along?
10: Well, we are all in on the rebuilding on what we've called the geographically balanced resilient supply chain, where, you know, this industry was 80% in U.S. and Europe 30 years ago. Now it's 80% manufactured in Asia. What happened? You know, and it was never as I, uh, you know, I was in Washington last week and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I joked to some of the congressional leaders, we never voted to get rid of this industry. but those countries voted to get this industry you know and they put strong packages in place to attract this industry there and now we see that oh you know we are way too dependent on too few places in the world you know and has Linda, what aspect of your life is not becoming more digital everything's becoming digital right you know my consumer my health care my trade you know transportation you know how i work how i live and everything digital runs on semiconductors. As I say, you know where the oil reserves are define geopolitics for the last five decades. Where the fabs are is more important for the next several decades. Let's build them where we want them and do it in a way that we have more resilience to the supply chain.
11: It is all great that you want to make the U.S. and Europe a priority, but it's also about scaling and scaling quickly. How soon can you get there?
10: Well, you know, we've announced the Ohio site expansions in Arizona. In Europe, we announced our expansion in uh, Germany, new research in uh, France, expansions continuing in Ireland. And what we're really now anxious to see is that the U.S. and the EU CHIPS Act get completed that allows us to make those good economic investments. Because part of the challenge is is that we're competing now with countries that have very actively incented those investments in Asia. And these investments, they have to be competitive worldwide or I can't compete for the worldwide market. So and that's what we're looking for, the EU leaders as well as the U.S. Uh, congressional leaders, get these things done so we can go faster.
11: Just for our radio listeners, we're speaking to Pat Galsinger, Intel CEO here in Davos. Pat, I mean, we, we talk about how we want to ramp up that production uh, in the U.S. and Europe, but what kind of government support are you seeing, are you getting, and yeah. is it
10: enough? Well, you know, the U.S. CHIPS Act, 52 billion dollars. The European uh, CHIPS Act, 45 billion euros. And as we've looked at those programs and we've helped to shape them, they make us competitive in the world. We feel very good that these are very good steps forward. And it's against what I call the moonshot. And by the end of the decade, our objective is that we go from 80-20, 80% Asia, 20% uh, U.S. and Europe, to 50-50. 30% Right, 30% U.S., 20% in Europe, 50% in Asia. That is the goal that we are driving these for, and we think these these are great steps forward, and if they are being successful, we can drive toward that 2030 goal of 50-50.
3: Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. I want to get back to that breaking news out of Snap. The company shares plummeting in late trading here in the U.S. after cutting its guidance for the current quarter. Our at Ludlow here, Snap shares, last I looked, down more than 22 yep. percent, saying the macroeconomic environment has deteriorated much more quickly than even they anticipated. Yeah,
0: and you'll, you'll remember in April when they reported first quarter earnings and gave guidance for the current set of quarter, they said that they started the year better than expected. Advertisers had held up. A lot of young people stuck with Snap at a time where they weren't sticking with Facebook, that's for sure. But things changed, particularly in the context of the war in Ukraine. And what we're hearing from Snap right now is that that's got even worse. And so they're saying our revenue in the second quarter, our adjusted earnings before interest tax, etc., will be at the lower end of the scale, which they gave. In revenue, they said it'd be 20, 25%. The street have been looking for something more like 28,
3: 29%. And this has also taken down other social media stocks. Right? Twitter did, Twitter <laughs> doesn't need any more bad news, right? It does
0: not need any more complication, that's yes. for sure. I think you remember back in April when we were digesting Meta's earnings, we are thinking, oh, Snap was a bright spot. We did see movement in other stocks depending on the fate of others. Why? Because They all have tied fates when it comes to advertising. And so this is worrying, especially for Facebook, where Snap has had growth, Facebook has stagnated in its growth. And so if we're hearing this message from Snap, I think there would be a concern to some of the other social media platforms.
3: Now, it was interesting at the time when Snap tied the lower numbers to the war in Ukraine. Right. When... It seems like it would be more directly tied to coming out of a pandemic and people just having less disposable time to sit around and look at social media.
0: So the the thing when you cover social media stocks and companies is we forget how they make money, which is advertising revenue. You know, we're super fixated on how many users they do or don't have on a daily or monthly active user basis or how their growth is. But ultimately, advertisers have other reasons to pull money, right? If they don't have confidence in the global economy, they might hold off on spending. why? Because they're targeting people with those ads. They need the consumer to be strong to actually buy products. And that's certainly what we've seen in the war in Ukraine. You see Alphabet, the parent company of Google and YouTube, hit by similar I- impact. It's the worry that those ads aren't getting any eyeballs willing to spend.
3: All right. Ed Ludlow, thank you for that update. We are watching so many tech companies trying to navigate this sell-off. And my next guest is one of software's biggest success stories. But even they haven't been immune to the recent volatility. I'm joined now by Shantanu Ryan. He is the CEO and chair of of adobe shantanu great to have you back with us it's been a while and the world has changed a lot i have to get your reaction to the latest sell-off obviously we're talking about what's happening in snap at this very moment but in big tech more broadly as well what's your outlook on all of this given that you've been in this industry for a couple of decades
5: Well, Emily, first, it's great to be back on your show. As you said, it's been uh, a couple of years. And uh, big picture for us, uh, certainly the move towards digital, it's no longer uh, would be nice. It's an absolutely critical imperative. And so uh, it's sort of a cliche, but the truth is that digital is changing everything from uh, entertainment to work to play. And uh, I think we're at the center of all those secular trends. So uh, some of the companies reporting, I don't understand fully what they're business cycles uh, are, but from our perspective, we continue to innovate and our addressable market opportunity just continues to grow larger and larger.
3: Now, some folks are comparing what we're seeing right now to the dot-com bust, and I'd love to hear how you are trying to put this into context. What is your assessment of the macroeconomic environment and the, the, the circumstances that are beyond your control, whether it is inflation or rising rates or an ongoing war?
5: Well, a couple of thoughts uh, come to mind, Emily. The first is that we have been through this incredible uh, macroeconomic bull period for the last few years. And so uh, to some degree, a business cycle is absolutely uh, critical. And that's happening also as a result of the backdrop of what happened both with the pandemic and more recently with the war in Ukraine. I believe that what this will uh, cause is a number of companies that are single product companies that may not have the depth and the breadth of the kinds of offerings that the larger tech companies like Adobe have uh, will be shaken out. And so I think part of what you're seeing is a normal uh, period where uh, when you go through such a boom, everybody believes that uh, you know it's because of them. And then you realize in a period like this, uh, who are gonna be the true secular winners? And I think Adobe is gonna be part of it. So I think the way we think about an opportunity like this is, uh, first, are we continuing to innovate on behalf of our customers? Second, we have a tremendous balance sheet. We have tremendous opportunity. So don't do anything Uh, that is short-term focused and continue to focus on making sure that we drive uh, the company long-term. But I think for the single product companies or the much smaller companies, it's going to be a trying period because whether it's the war in Ukraine or the potential dark clouds on the macroeconomic environment, a lot of those companies haven't learned how to deal with that.
3: Now, speaking of innovation at Adobe, you just launched Creative Cloud Express. Most folks know Adobe for its signature Photoshop product, which is facing some increasing competition from Canva, Lightrix. How do you plan to hold off some of that, you know, potential market share gains to some of these competitors for this iconic product in your portfolio?
5: Emily, we created three categories. And when you create three large categories, the way we did, whether it's creativity and uh, you know our vision of enabling anybody who has a story to tell, to tell their story, at the other end of the spectrum, whether it's enabling every single business that's increasingly going to be digital to engage with their customers digitally, and in the middle, what we do with document cloud and automating document uh, productivity. Uh, these are massive markets, and we're gonna win because we created these markets, we have a vision for the market, but the reality is that when you create these addressable opportunities that are hundreds of billions of dollars, you're gonna see other companies. So the way we focus on it, specifically on the creative side, we are the largest company in that space. We have an incredible portfolio, whether it's Creative Cloud, as you You mentioned in Photoshop what we are doing to enable the emerging metaverse, what we are doing uh, for people who are either communicators or consumers. So I think it's the breadth of our offerings and it's the depth of our technology and understanding of these trends that will continue to make sure that Adobe is at the forefront of all of these massive opportunities.
3: You've got $5 billion in cash sitting on your balance sheet. Are you eyeing any acquisitions? We were just talking about a big potential deal between Broadcom and VMware.
5: Adobe always looks for really deep technology uh, and great culture. Uh, I think to your point, uh, what's happened in the market, there will be a number of companies. So, you know, we're always judicious and we're always thoughtful in terms of the acquisitions that we made. We just made a couple of acquisitions that have actually turned out to be a phenomenal one in the collaboration space, Emily, where we bought this company called Frame.io, which enables anybody who's doing video collaboration to collaborate in a way. We've also bought a company called Workfront that allows anybody who's creating these marketing campaigns uh, to be far more efficient. So we're always looking. We're very pleased with the portfolio of products that we have in the depth, but uh, we will continue to take a look and our criteria continues to be making sure that there's great technology, that there's a culture match and financially it uh, is a good deal for our shareholders.
3: All right, Shantanu Narayan, CEO of Adobe. Great to have you back with us. Hopefully we can do it again (laughs) before another two years pass. Thank you. Coming up, once the crypto darling, Coinbase now crashing hard. What is behind the rise and fall of the largest U.S. cryptocurrency exchange? And what does it mean? That's next. This is Bloomberg.
9: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise. And everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
7: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank, because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
10: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
3: It's time now for our crypto report, and I want to take a quick look at Coinbase, which has gone from one of the stock market's biggest debuts to one of its most spectacular crashes all in a little over a year. Coinbase seeing a bit of a hike in Monday trading, but shares still down, about $66 apiece, way down from that $319 high. Back in November 2021, I want to get into this all and more with Rebecca Cada, Director of Marketing at XBTO, which offers global access to crypto finance through institutional trading, mining and investing. Rebecca, what do you make of Coinbase in particular as a microcosm of what's happening in crypto more broadly?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, we have to remember that crypto is such it's in its preteen phase um, as a kind of financial system uh, and digital asset class. So it's important to note that volatility is just a huge part of emerging technologies. So uh, what's interesting to note with Coinbase in particular is their price to earnings are quite high. Uh, And as we know, as we've seen often with the stock market, you can have great earnings or great financials and your stock still plummets. And so what I really see here is is negative impacts of the very notorious uh, stablecoin, you know, failure, if you will, uh, with Terra Luna recently in the last couple of weeks. That's causing a lot of uh, of panic, if you will, from retail investors. And then looking at Coinbase as a as a kind of a definition of crypto in the markets is seeing some of those um, downturns.
3: So, how long would you say this crypto winter is going to last? We talked to a guest last week who thinks that. Don't expect Bitcoin to start trading back up for 12 to 18 months.
1: I think it's possible, Emily. I mean, if I had an oracle and I could tell you definitively, uh, I would let you know. But what happens <laughs> frequently in crypto is that, you know, the lows are are, are getting higher and they're getting shorter. So it's, it's kind of the same with the early stock market, right? We go in these different financial cycles and, you know, they, they last a lot longer in the early stage and then they start to get a lot shorter. But I'll bet my career that Bitcoin and Ethereum are not going to zero. And what we're seeing right now is just... The uh, the impact of some news that's been happening and even the global markets. Right. I think that as we've discussed, uh, many guests on your show have discussed kind of different, you know, macro trends at work. These external events that are affecting everything. Crypto is not the only one that's being impacted. You've seen a lot of tech stocks fall, you know, 70 percent as well. I think in depending upon how you uh, judge it, that some of the tech stocks could be more volatile than crypto right now.
3: So how is this all impacting
1: institutional
3: appetite to expose, uh, you know, themselves to more uh, crypto assets? I mean, you know, we were seeing that build up to this point, but are institutional investors starting to get cold feet?
1: well you've seen Goldman just invested in, in Elwood technologies um, which does actually help them uh, you know service their clients and, and institutions that are looking to diversify into crypto but what typically happens Emily is that you have retail investors who are maybe uh, newer investors and so they see downturns like this and they panic sell and get frustrated and then this becomes a huge opportunity for institutions to get in at a more palatable price point so um, you know something that we've seen is Some of the largest crypto wallets have been actually amassing a lot more of top tier crypto. So I would say that this is actually one of the times that, you know, um, different funds, uh, folks that have been allocating, you know, slowly kind of investing over time. um, This is a good point for them to kind of get back in at a price that, that is a little bit more reasonable. Meantime,
3: you have venture capitalists looking at funding the next big crypto thing. And I wonder when you look at a company like Coinbase, is that a matter of you know just the market or is there also some measure of poor execution there?
1: Uh, with Coinbase specifically, I think that you know, uh, they've definitely done a lot of hires. Um, so when it comes to kind of business execution, I think that you know it's it's easy for companies to get into this this place of over hiring um, for lots of positions that they can't necessarily uh, derive a lot of value from at the time. And we've seen that with crypto companies, we've seen that with tech companies, and oftentimes that that can be um, definitely a. a It takes the wind out of their sails, if you will. So sometimes it can be a little bit about poor business execution, um, but that happens all the time, unfortunately.
3: Okay, Rebecca Kata, XBTO, thank you for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. Shaking up office Wi-Fi, it's harder to set up than you might think. And the founders of Meter, two brothers, think it's the next big opportunity in big tech. METER is a startup that makes all of its own hardware and software to that end. It is backed by Silicon Valley heavyweights from Sequoia and Silver Lake to VMware and Stripe. Here to talk about it all, co-founder and CEO of METER, Anil Varanasi. Anil, great to have you back with us. So what are the problems with office Wi-Fi that we don't quite understand?
12: Yeah, every business runs on connectivity, right? Most companies no longer build their own data centers, but internet infrastructure continues to be something that's complex, time-consuming, and really difficult. So what we think it should be like is similar to a utility that when you go into a space, just like you turn on electricity or water, it just works. And what we're seeing is that every business increasingly is reliant on software and technology. And frankly, we just don't think that's going to slow down at all. So for all of this to work, we really need great internet infrastructure across all of the different uh, market segments.
3: Now, you say you want internet service and infrastructure to be a utility. What do you mean by that? And isn't it already kind of a utility?
12: So outside of spaces, it truly is. But if you go inside of a space, let's say, you know, you're setting up a warehouse, a life sciences lab, uh retail, healthcare, office space, what happens inside, it takes months, you have to deal with so many different vendors, and you have to take on the complexity of maintaining these really old systems. And so what we do is make all of that kind of go away so that customers can just go on with building their own business.
3: Broadly, is there a redistribution happening of how we use Wi-Fi given the shift to remote work, more people working at home? I mean, aren't less people working in the office today?
12: Yeah, we we certainly service customers in offices, but we service customers in warehouses, life sciences lab, elsewhere. So think about the past two years where we've all ordered stuff on e-commerce. That comes from a warehouse where it has robots and sensors and computers. And so everything runs on the Internet. So there probably isn't a company, a product or something that we are customers of where they don't run on Internet networking and Wi-Fi.
3: Now you founded this company with your brother and I've heard some um, interesting comparisons to you all and the Collison brothers who of course uh, co-founded Stripe and uh, whose career I've enjoyed following over the last decade. Talk to us a little bit about your story and why you chose to take internet infrastructure on when it could have been just about anything.
12: Yeah, I think fundamentally what we saw was, this is a problem we wanted to solve ourselves. But as we started working with a lot of different companies and talk to companies that are stalwart technology companies, we increasingly saw them spending a lot of time in capital. But even if we take a step back for a second, what's important is to think about, again, we've heard about software eating the world and um, technology being everywhere. Internet infrastructure is kind of that underlying bed that makes all of it possible. So I'm sure your kids watch YouTube or Twitch or we order something or order a car to go somewhere. All of that needs internet infrastructure to function. So we think it's tremendously important to get that right as technology grows over the next decade.
3: So let's talk about dollars. We know you just raised a big new round of funding, but you know how big is the market size here? How many billions of dollars do you think are up for grabs?
12: Yeah. So this is probably one of the largest markets there is in technology. Uh, you know, there's been some noteworthy companies for decades now. So you know, rather than kind of thinking about just particular market segment, what's important to look at is the billions of square feet that are in all of these segments that require internet infrastructure. So every single type of space you see as you're driving by or walking down Main Street, or when you think about a company you work with or a customer of, those are all customers that are potential market for us.
3: Is there a number you'd put on it?
12: No, not really. I think it's in the <laughs> tens to hundreds of billions, but I think it just, it, it, it's increasing. So what's again, you know, point earlier I was saying, this is where Currently, it's already one of the largest markets, but it is just increasing every year as all of these other technology companies become successful and every company becomes a technology company.
3: All right. Anil Varanasi, co-founder and CEO of Meter, we'll keep our eye on you and that big potential opportunity ahead. Thank you. Before we go, I want to mention two of those big tech stories that broke late in U.S. trading today. Snap shares falling after it cut its revenue and profit forecasts below the low end of its guidance. And part of that filing, the company saying the macroeconomic environment has deteriorated further and faster than they anticipated. We also watched Zoom report its results, projecting sales and profit for the current quarter that topped estimates. And coming up tomorrow, right here on Bloomberg Technology, we'll be talking about all these trends and earnings with Zoom CFO, Kelly Steckelberg. I'll also be speaking with Max Peterson, AWS Vice President for the worldwide public sector about the future of the cloud. That does it for Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg.